So the worship committee asked me to talk about science and spirituality. That's an easy one, right? Piece of cake? And to give you a little background, the reason they asked me is because I'm a scientist. I teach science, I teach chemistry and physics. My degrees are in chemistry, but I've also studied physics, and I love them. I get kind of ridiculously excited about science sometimes. Um, and the, and I, there's always been, not always been, there's often been a conflict between science and spirituality. And I like to imagine that it goes all the way back to the first person who started noticing patterns in the seasons. And for the purposes of my little story, we're going to pretend she's a woman, just because I can. So she's living her life, right? And she's been told all of her life that the days get shorter and colder at one part of the year, probably because there's an angry god or a sad goddess or something along those lines. And that to bring back the light and the warmth, there's a ritual that must be performed. And if it's performed in the prescribed ways, then the light and the warmth will return. But I imagine that she's curious, and she starts to notice patterns. So she starts to make some observations. She starts to see how things are happening, and she starts to make some predictions. She starts to think maybe she understands what's happening. And some of those predictions are wrong, and so she goes back and makes a few more observations and changes her predictions until she gets to the point that she's got a model that works pretty well. She can predict when the days are going to change and how the days are going to change. And I imagine her going to her community with this great sense of joy, with this eureka moment. Um, look what I've found. Look what I've discovered. And in my imaginary story, some of the people in her community are thrilled with this information, and some of them less so. Because there's a, there's, there's a, there's a comfort in things that are familiar. There's a comfort in fear and superstition. And there's also a beauty in magic. Right? There's a wonder in believing that our ritual makes the sun come back. But the thing that, that gets me is that I believe she had that same sense of awe and wonder and almost magic as her predictions started to be true. I feel like that sense of awe is at the heart of science and at the heart of spirituality. And I feel like that's where the two come together. One of my favorite authors is Anne Lamott. And her book, Help, Thanks, Wow!, the three great prayers is about the three great prayers, which she says are help and thanks and wow. And the one where I think the overlap comes is in wow. She talks about wow moments that come from nature, that come from relationships, that come from science. And she says, awe is why we are here. This state of prayer, this, and this state is the prayer, wow. So on the spiritual side, there's an acknowledgement of awe. And on the scientific side, there is, too. One of my favorite quotes about science and spirituality comes from Carl Sagan, the man who told us that we are star stuff. And he said, science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. When we recognize our place in an immensity of light years and in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty, and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined is surely spiritual. So are our emotions in the presence of great art or music or literature or of acts of exemplary selfless courage, such as those as Mohandas Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. The notion that science and spirituality are somehow mutually exclusive does a disservice to both. I assume we're all here, like in this building today, because we're seeking something more, something bigger than ourselves, a connection to something larger. And sometimes when we've been looking at something in the same way for a long time, we kind of stop seeing it. When's the last time you really thought about your hands? 
In your hands, there are 27 bones controlled by 34 muscles. Do you know how many of the muscles are in your fingers? None of them. How cool is that? All of the muscles that control your hands, these extraordinary tools um, that have a, a, an ability to be both strong and gentle, that scientists are having real trouble replicating with robotics because the, 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 the range of motion of our hands and the range of sensitivity is so extraordinary. But we rarely think about that. We just, they're our hands, right? That we use them. What I want to do today is tell you about some of the things in science that give me that sense of awe and wonder. To stop and look at things that you normally don't think about. And I hope to convince you, if you're not already convinced, that there is as much awe and wonder in science as there is in, in spirituality and in other parts of the world. So, and my hope is that it will let you find another source of wow in your life. Now, don't panic. I'm going to get this, I'm going to get the, the board out. I'm only going to write a little bit, and I promise there won't be a quiz. All right, so what do I have here? Circles. Lots of circles. Um, and we can talk about the size of a circle, and there are generally two ways we talk, well, at least two ways we talk about the size of a circle. We talk about how long it takes you to walk around the outside, which is... Cir well, perimeter in general, but for a circle we call it, oh no, oh, what do we think? Listen, I want to put what, you to put whatever vowel in there feels right to you. I don't want to limit you in your choice of vowels. The consonants I feel like we're going to have to stick with, but, but you, you do what feels right to you. Sure. And another way we can measure the size of a circle is the distance across it, Yes. And we're going to call that diameter. And that one I can spell. Now, we could measure this, right? We could take a piece of string, maybe, and wrap it around and then measure the string. It'd be easy to measure the distance across. So we could do these measurements, right? Wouldn't be that tricky. We could find some numbers. And if we were just feeling like it, we could take the circumference and we could divide it by the diameter. And we get a number. We'd get about three. Well, then we could do it again with the other circles, right? We could measure the circumference and measure the diameter. Measure the circumference, measure the diameter. Even this little one that I don't think you can see. We could measure its circumference and measure its diameter. And here's the thing that's amazing, or the first thing that's amazing. Every time we divide the circumference by the diameter, we get about three. Not only do we get about three, but if we're more and more careful with our measurements, we get about 3.14. We get about 3.1415. The more precisely we measure these, these distances, the more digits we get in this number, and it does not matter how big our circle is. Every single circle gives us this same ratio. Well, whenever scientists find something cool or mathematicians find something cool, we want to give it a number. We want to give it a name and a label. And the name and the label we gave to this number is pi. So the first thing that I think is amazing about pi is that it's the same for every single circle. But the second thing that I think is amazing about pi is that it never stops. And it never repeats. It's an irrational number. 
So as long as we keep finding these digits, and there are also equations where we can calculate this because we'll reach the limit of our ability to measure really quickly. We can use equations to calculate pi out to trillions of digits, and there is no evidence that it ever repeats or will ever repeat, which means that pi has in it everything. Let me show you what I mean. I have up here round things. All right. I'm not going to do the whole thing. Obviously, I can't do the whole thing. But I have the first 10,000 digits of pi. <laughs> Stay with me. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I'm going to start reading them. And I want you to listen for a number that has a meaning to you. I want you to listen for your age or the year you were born or maybe your street number. Okay? And when you hear one of those numbers, I want you to raise a hand. And if you hear another, I want you to raise another hand. You get the game we're playing? So if you're 42, then if I say 4-2, you raise your hand. Okay? All right. 3.141592653589732 Three, eight, four, six, two, six, four, three, three, eight, three, two, seven, nine, five, zero, two, eight, eight, four, one, nine, seven, one, six, nine, three, nine, nine, three, seven. Five, one, zero, five. Would you leave them up? Eight, two, zero, nine, seven, four, nine, four, four, five, nine, two, three, zero, seven, eight, one, six, four, zero, six, two, eight, six, two. Zero, eight. I might have repeated myself. At any rate, I think we have the point here. I don't think I need to do the whole thing to realize that if I keep going, we're all going to have both hands in the air, right? And then possibly some under other appendages. If I keep going long enough, I'm going to get to your phone number, all 10 digits of it. If I keep going long enough, I'm going to get to your social security number. I'm going to get to your credit card numbers. I'm going to get to all the numbers that are possible. And the thing you have to remember is that we can describe anything in numbers. Like if you just think about a simple substitution, A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and so on, you can see how we can get letters from numbers. And there are other ways that we can get, we can, we can call anything numbers. And pi never stops, which means that every single sequence of numbers is contained within the ratio of a circ circumference of a circle to its diameter. Your genetic code and your genetic code and your genetic code and your genetic code are all contained within pi. Now, if that's not a wow moment, I don't know what is. Because how many circles do you see in a day? Lots. And each of those circles contains the universe. Now, I'm not going to talk about the infinity of universes, 
That's a fun one too, but maybe if you want to catch me after church, we'll have a cup of coffee and we'll talk about the infinity of universes, the possibility that every time there's a choice, we split and both things happen. So there's a universe in which I chose the black and white dress this morning instead of the blue and green one. There's a universe in which that, um, that yellow and blue dress is actually, what was it? White and gold. Every possibility is out there, is, 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 is one possible theory. All right, so that's infinity. The second thing I want to talk about today is potential. And to talk about potential, I'm going to write an equation. It's going to be okay, I promise. I'm going to do a little physics, just a little. If we call the position of something x, okay, good. Um, we can call the position where it starts x sub i, which i is going to mean initial. So we have an initial position for an object. Well, an object that just sits is pretty boring. So let's make our object move. And if our object moves, then its position is going to change, right? So if we talk about how fast that position changes, if we take the change in x, it is Greek. If it feels like Greek, it, it is, actually. <laughs> Delta x means change in x. So the change in position divided by time, we're going to call velocity or speed. Pretty much the same thing, at least, for, at least for this morning. Velocity and speed are going to be the same thing. So we now have our, our object, and our object is moving. But if our object just keeps moving at the same speed, that's kind of boring too. We might like it to move faster. We might like it to slow down. So if our velocity is going to change, we need a name for that too. So if we change our velocity and divide that by time, then we get acceleration. And that's as far as we're going to go. We can talk about what happens if the acceleration changes, but we can do a lot of good with what we have right here. So with a few little, little tricks and little algebra stuff up here, I can arrive at an equation for the position of an object. And it's going to say where the object is, x, is equal to where it started out, which was xi, plus how fast it was going at first, which is vi, times how long it's been moving, there's our t, plus one-half times the acceleration times the time squared. Just trust me on that last one. I promise it's true. Okay, so see that wasn't so bad, right? It didn't hurt too much. So the position is equal to where you started plus how fast you were going times how long you went that fast plus one-half times how much your speed was changing times the time squared. If we think of this as a function of time, and we think about looking at where our object is as time changes, well, this is what we call a quadratic formula. You might even remember the song, negative b plus or minus. We're not going to do that, I promise. But when we look at a quadratic formula and when we put it on a graph, we get something pretty, or at least I think it's pretty. Especially if our v and our a start off in opposite directions, then what we get are parabolas. And sometimes we get big fat parabolas, 
and sometimes we get short parabolas, and sometimes we get tall, skinny parabolas. All of that depends on sort of where we start, where we aim, because what does this look like? Oh, <laughs> it looks like a Star Trek communicator. That's not what I was going for. But you're exactly right. I was thinking of something a little bit different. A thrown ball, right? If I throw a ball up in the air, the path that it follows is a parabola. And if I throw it up really kind of straight up in the air, then I get this skinny parabola in the middle. If I kind of toss it sort of at this angle, I'm going to get the, the one in between. And if I just barely toss it off the ground, I'll get this low parabola. You've seen this, right? In the path of a thrown ball? All right, can somebody help me? Somebody who can catch? Okay. <laughs> I like how Eli's ducking. You don't trust either of us, do you? Okay, there we go. Now, I would have you throw it back, but I feel like that ends badly. I could possibly catch it with two hands, but with one, there's no way. All right, Bob, you ready? We're going to go up higher with this one. Did you see the parabola? I get distracted. This is the level of dork that I am. When I go and watch my son play lacrosse, I'm watching the ball, and I'm seeing the parabola that it describes in the air. And I think that it is just so much wow that we can take those equations, and from the equations we can get these graphs, and then the ball actually does that, right? It's not just numbers I put up here. It's not just things you had to draw in math class. The world is described by these equations. All right, but there's one part of this that's my favorite. They're all my favorite. <laughs> I'm going to do this with the larger one, and I swear I'm not going to break anything or set anything on fire. No. Listen, if this goes badly, do you promise not to tell Barbara? <laughs> all right, I'm going to throw this one straight up and then catch it. Hopefully. You have no faith in me, Virginia. <laughs> because I threw it pretty much straight up. But the reason I threw it pretty much straight up is I want you to watch it. And I want you to watch it at the very top. The very, very top. Yeah. What does it do at the very, very top? It stops moving, right? Just for an instant, it stops moving. Now, it's kind of hard to believe, but if your phone is fancy enough, you can film it and then go frame by frame and see it and I think you can also believe me that if you start out going up and later you're going down, somewhere in the middle you must have stopped. The only way to change direction is to be still for at least a second. We can talk about the energy of objects. We usually divide it into kinetic energy and potential energy. Potential energy is stored energy. And at that very highest point, all of the energy that ball has is potential energy. It has the ability to do something because of where it is, and it holds there for just a second. But then when it comes back down, it changes that energy again into motion, into doing stuff. And then later it's lost into heat and so on. But the thing that I love about that is this idea of potential. And we also see it when we talk about electric circuits in science. And we see it when we talk about chemical bonds and, and, and the way chemicals react with each other. It's this idea of something that might do something. 
And when you combine the idea of potential with this idea of the infinite, for me, visually, it's the cover of your order of service. It's this branching picture, and it kind of ties back into that fractal idea from the meditation. There are all these branching paths, and each path has different potentials, and you get to choose the potentials. You get to choose the paths. And when I talk to the kids and I talk about their potential, they're kind of way down here, right? There's so much potential ahead of them. You think about when you were that age and you were going to be a firefighter and an astronaut and a veterinarian and, you know, possibly a superhero if you had time on the weekends. And as we go on, we move down and we choose paths or paths are chosen depending on sort of, you know, how, how things are happening. Um, and there are, fewer, there are fewer branches ahead of us, but there are still branches. And we've seen this on Facebook a thousand times, but I'll just remind you that Julia Child, do you know when she started cooking? In her 40s is when she started cooking. Catherine Joosten is an actress that I think of as Mrs. Landingham, but she also won Emmys for her roles on Desperate Housewives. I wish I had a picture. You would go, oh, hey, her. Um, she started acting at 56. She moved to Hollywood, moved in with her son, and began her acting career at 56. Diana Nyad was 64 when she swam from Cuba to Florida. Let me say that again. She swam from Cuba to Florida at age 64. Colonel Sanders used his first Social Security check at age 65 to open Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and the one we always end with is Grandma Moses, who started painting at age 75. So our branches aren't done. None of our branches are done. There's this whole world of potential out there. There's so much magic and so much wonder in the world around there. And you may see it in sort of the invisible threads of the interconnected web, and you may see it in the small spark of the divine, and you may see it in all the children of God around you, but I hope you'll also see it in how the ratio of a circle, circumference to its diameter, gives you a number that never ends and contains everything, and how equations and graphs become the path of a ball, and how weather's a little scary. <laughs> When you leave here today, your afternoon, your week, your summer stretches ahead of you. It's full of all sorts of potential. And I hope that, that, that in that potential, you will found, find lots and lots of wow. <laughs>